0: Welcome everybody to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Today, we are going to be talking to Andrew Yang. Actually, that's a lie. We're not talking to him today. We already talked to him the other day. Yes, <laughs> and it was a
1: lovely conversation.
0: Yes, and uh, but we're just doing the intro today. But there's uh, a lot of stuff to talk about Uh you know, I would say I'm looking forward to the conversation with Yang, but we already had it. I it. <laughs> <So> <laughs> looking forward that. to sharing
1: it with you all. He just wrote a book actually called The Last Election, which is a novel um, that he co-wrote. And so we get into, like, what inspired it and if he really thinks we're on the brink of a catastrophic last election, end of democracy, civil war kind of thing. We kind of go back and forth on that. So yeah. I think it'll be interesting for but people. But we also
0: get into stuff not related at all to the book, which— Yeah, forward we Party
1: and yeah, what he's course, up to. Course, mm-hmm.
0: yeah. All right, so— um, There's a bunch of stuff to talk about today, though, either way. uh, We were considering talking about Bill Maher being a scab, but we decided that the commentary is too obvious. Screw you, Bill Maher, you're a scab. <laughs> you talked about it on we Breaking Points. We talked about points. it on Breaking Points if you want to it. see my full thoughts, but they are exactly it. what you think. And said scab time with Smug Mar because that's what he should rename his show to. But uh, So we got this UAW strike. We're on the verge of it. And Tell me what's going on with that. Yeah,
1: so actually by the time this is released, they may already um, be in a uh, strike mode uh, because the deadline is midnight on, or 11.59 technically, on Thursday night and looking very much like they're going to go out. Um, their new president of the UAW, Sean Fain, who is really impressive, and I love this man, and quite militant and uh, representative of the rank and file's desires to get at least some of the some of what they lost back in the financial crisis back and some pay gains and all of those sorts of things, he revealed their strike strategy. And the idea is they're going to target all of the big three, which is unusual and unique in terms of their historic approach to um, going out on strike. And rather than everyone going out all at once, Want, they're going to target specific plants, specific locals to go out, and then as negotiations proceed or negotiations fail, they're going to ratchet up the pressure and ratchet up the pressure and ratchet up the pressure. So that has two impacts. Number one, it keeps them from draining their strike fund um, super quickly, which they actually have a very large strike fund, so they could sustain this for quite a while and keep their workers paid and fed, et cetera. Um, and also, it perhaps it it also keeps uh, the, the bosses and the executives guessing of what's going to happen next and allows them to continue to exert maximum. Pressure. So I think it's a very intelligent approach. Um, However, let me jump in for a second. Before we
0: get to the video, I just wanted to point out the UAW has 150,000 members. Yes. This would be a gigantic strike. Huge. Huge.
1: And the auto industry is so iconic. Right. I mean, it's hard to think of an American industrial brand that is more iconic and more central to our mythology about the American middle class and the reality of building out the American middle class than, like, Detroit and the big three. So anything they do here is going to punch way above their weight. The audacity um, the boldness of the demands that they're making is also really amazing and exciting because they're asking not only for, they want a 40% pay raise. So, let me, can, yeah. I,
0: can I interject here? Yeah. Cause I want to give everybody a fun fact on this. First of all, they want the four day work week, which I'm sure you were about to point out. Second mm-hmm. of all, you brought up the forty percent pay raise. I was watching a CNBC interview the other day, and they, they were talking talking to some random corporate <laughs> interviewer, and the guy's yeah. like, "All right, like I see your demands here. So you want a forty percent pay raise for the workers? And of course, Sean Fain wants that because the executives got a forty percent pay raise. He's right. Like I didn't pull this number out of nowhere. I want this for a reason. Right. So he brings that up, and he's like, the host is like, "Okay, but would you, you know, would you accept? Is there wiggle room there? Would you accept maybe like thirty percent? And Sean Fain goes, "No.
1: And I was like, all right, (laughs) let's go. Listen, I am loving Sean. There's something about his, like, there's this sort of, like, aw shucks nature to him and this very almost, like, monotone voice, but then he's delivering this just absolutely blazing classmate. He's no nonsense. I, I mean, he's I, no nonsense. Yeah, he I, also
0: said, I enjoy him. He also said, oh, people are trying to say we're going to wreck the economy. No, we're not going to wreck the economy. We're going to wreck their economy, the billionaire yes. economy. Yes. I was like, oh,
1: love snap. that. <laughs> love that. So anyway, while we love it, Jim Cramer over on CNBC, he's been having at this point like a multi month meltdown over Sean Fain's rhetoric and who he is and the possibility of them going out on strike. So he had uh, his latest reaction. He offered a an unbelievable suggestion for what the car companies should actually do in response. Let's take a listen. I,
2: I'm going to posit something. I, the man you saw just now, I think, is a paper tiger. He's coming in and saying, well, they've never seen anything like it. I think there's a nuclear option on the table, if he's not careful. And that nuclear option is a country called Mexico. You don't hear about it much. But if you say we're intransigent and we're going to stay at 40 percent, there's no give, well, you know what? Monterey Puebla, corrector. There's the capacity to have that happen, not overnight. Mercedes, and Mercedes did it in two years.
3: Two years would be a long time, too. Why? Uh, they don't have
2: that much demand. You put that out there and you say, listen, all the new... You want to know where the new ones are going to be made? We're going to continue to make the old ones. But Puebla's got a 55,000-person factory for VW, and they got a good educational workforce. It's $5 an hour. No real pollution control rules. That's not to be mentioned. Have free health care. So you know what, you want to play ball? You want to keep doing this? Mexico. Glad to see you're standing up for the American worker here, Jim. Thanks for that. Well, No, I'm, I was a union member twice. One was completely corrupt when I let a wildcat strike and was fired. Oh, okay. That was not good. But in this case, you seem to believe that the automakers have the upper hand. Well, I just think that the this upper man, hand. this man, and I like, you know, the union, you could say that they're way behind, the wages aren't the same. Uh, as well, his well point is, would be that they have barely kept up. They haven't kept up with even the pace 20% of inflation. So since you go to twenty-five. Go to. Are they not? you not satisfied with twenty-five percent increase? I think most of America's is Ford's the most unionized company in America. It is. What about the way that they say they're going to strike, which would be not across the board? Well, but Stellantis specific. is the one yeah. that you want to go up, Oh, you mean targeted factors? Yes, targeted. Factors. So you target the F one hundred and fifty because it makes a lot of money. The F one hundred and fifty hybrid. You know, they can build a hybrid very easily, Monterey.
4: Uh, B of A took a crack at that, what they're calling a standing strike where you go after individual facilities. Uh, Their argument is um, it'd be very difficult and inefficient for any of the operators to to coexist with that. So they see likely, if if it goes that way, makes sense to shut down, uh, lay off the workers, and uh, restart if and when you get a deal.
2: Well, look, I I think this man... I would not say that Sean Fain is a paper tiger. Had they, you thin- just said he was a paper tiger. No, I said I wouldn't say if they had raised oh, a lot of money in a strike fund. Their strike fund is five weeks. Well, they can pay you five hundred dollars, six hundred dollars a week, and then you're out of money. People like to get paid. You can't hold out. I mean, these guys are not so like you're just running basing backs. It solely they're on not, the fact that right? They're not like the- a running back who's going to hold out and get a big deal. There's no big deal if you hold out. And you've got to put food on the table. I'm just saying that Sean Feeney, when you listen to him, he sounds like he's the president of the United States. No, president of something higher than the United States. He's not. And he won by a very slim amount. And I have a factory in Mexico. Let me tell you something. It's fantastic.
1: So he suggests that they move all production to Mexico, where, of course, the wages are way less. And He said know,
0: $5 an hour.
1: You know it's bad when even your fellow CNBC host is like, Really, you're going to just throw American workers under the bus like that? He's also just, as Jim Cramer classically is, completely wrong about their strike fund, which has, I think, $850 million in it, which even if they were going all out, all at one time, would be enough to sustain them for roughly three months— How are these automakers going to be doing? How much loss are they going to be taking in terms of their profit and their bottom line over three months' time? But since they're taking this targeted approach and upping the ante and upping the ante and upping the ante, ante, I suspect that strike fund can last a whole lot longer than the three months that had been projected.
0: So let me just say, I have a little bit of a weird take on this. I'm curious your reaction to it. Okay. Uh, What Kramer is describing there is actually the problem— with the nature of capitalism correct is that like this is exactly what the what they're thinking what the brass is thinking at the big three they're like let's well okay screw you we'll just outsource all the jobs to mexico because this is something we've seen it done time and time and time again in the u.s economy now here's the thing though and this this is the interesting point is that we know the nlrb the recent nlrb is pretty freaking militant and they're Pretty goddamn good at their jobs. They raised the overtime pay rule and they did the rule where it's like, if there's union busting, we're just going to automatically recognize the union. Yep. So that's like a game changer where the NLRB is like, look, we're on the side of labor yep. more so than any previous NLRB. Yep. So what I'm thinking is that is what the they're thinking, what the big three uh, management is thinking. But I would like to see if they do start to move in that direction, I would like to see the government intervene and the Biden administration say, if you outsource those jobs to Mexico, we're going to tariff the vehicles so that if they come in this country, it's going it's to cost more to you to outsource them than yeah. if you were to keep the jobs here. Yes. And that's where you need a government that's on the side of labor in order to facilitate a concern for American jobs, because the problem for the entire neoliberal era is that, the government only cared about management and the bosses and the CEOs mm-hmm. and the owner class. That's right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah.
1: That, this what he's describing is like basically what happened in NAFTA, right? And mm-hmm. what happened with permanent normal trading relations with China, right? I mean, this he is accurately describing the race to the bottom that has been the reality of radical free market capitalism under neoliberalism since, you know, starting with Carter and definitely solidified in the Reagan and then Clinton era. That is exactly what has fucking happened. And there is no answer to that other um, than—over the long term, there is no answer to that other than the government making it a priority that Americans have good, well-paying jobs. Now, I actually think for the short term, it's a fucking stupid suggestion, because as his co-host points out, like, if they wanted to do that, over the long term, yeah, they could do it over, you know, three months, a year, not a chance. You can't move all this production of Mexico like that. It's not something you can do with a drop of a hat. So that's not realistic from that perspective. And then the other piece is that the Biden administration has already made it. So there are a lot of incentives for them to keep their EV um, production that's here right. in the U.S.
0: With the IRA. That's so, right. I
1: mean, that's the whole idea behind the Inflation Reduction Act is this is industrial policy designed to incentivize large corporations to keep those jobs here and build the cars of the future here in the U.S. Now, of course, there would be some number beyond which it no longer makes economic sense for them, but the subsidies that are um, in that bill are significant enough that, you know, we already see them moving to open new plants and keep that EV production here. Now, not to get too much in the weeds, there's actually a big rub between the UAW and the Biden administration over the way these incentives were designed, because while they Incentivize high wages They did not put in what they originally intended Which was a union requirement Mandate, yeah Because of fucking Joe Manchin
0: Of course I mean, he was yeah.
1: And so they just abandoned that And so now there's a rub And there's, you know an issue Like Tesla didn't want that, of course And so there's a, a tension between the UAW And the Biden administration About the way they designed in these incentives But still, that industrial policy is important In terms of the leverage That the auto workers have in this situation Because the car makers do Get a big boon from keeping that production here in the U.S.
0: And, and let me just say, so we already know what's on the table as we speak, which is the Big Three are saying uh, roughly twenty percent pay increase. That's what they put on the table. Yes. And Sean Fain basically was like, "No, piss off."
1: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of it's kind of amazing. So I think it's always important to keep in mind that at the same time taxpayers were bailing out the Big Three, the workers also bailed out the big three. Yeah, because they
0: took a massive haircut.
1: Huge haircut in terms of pay, in terms of pensions. There was no more cost of living increase. They took on a two-tiered wage system. Um, There were, I think, 21,000 layoffs. There were a huge haircut, and I'm sure the the language at the time the writer goes, "Oh, when we get back on our feet, of course we'll you know we'll make it up to you," and of that never happened. So part of why the the asks he, here are so bold and ambitious is because they've been getting screwed for over a decade now, and even if. You know, even if they were to take, like, the 20% pay, you might say, oh, that sounds great, 20%. Now, first of all, it's over four years, um, but that doesn't get them back even to where they would have been based on previous pay before they bailed out these automakers, automakers that are making record profits, automakers that collectively, you know, issued $5 billion in stock buybacks last year, and now they're, like, crying poor when it comes to actually paying their workers. And I just... One thing that you'll hear a lot is, oh, if the labor costs, it'll make cars so expensive and they won't be able to compete, et cetera, et cetera. Labor costs are roughly 5% of the overall production costs of a car. So the idea that you can't pay your workers better, a living wage, like, and, you know, reflect the fact that these are the people that are generating all the profits for you is complete, utter garbage and nonsense. So when you inevitably hear that from, Corporate media, just know that is complete bullshit.
0: The CEO of Ford made twenty-one million dollars in I believe twenty twenty two. Twenty one million. Yeah. And the CEO of GM made twenty nine million. Yeah. So I yeah. mean we'll see what happens, but uh certainly solidarity.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we'll watch how this one unfolds.
0: All right. So um Megyn Kelly was able to get an interview with Donald Trump. Now, the backstory to this is kind of interesting because obviously for the longest time, they hated each other. Mm -hmm. Um, Trump despised Megyn Kelly because back during 2015 and 2016 for the Fox News debates, she asked some tough questions. And so I don't know if you remember this, Crystal, but after that debate, he really uh, flipped out. And basically refused to do any more Republican debates unless Megyn Kelly was not moderating them. Yeah, you remember that? Yeah. And then well, he literally the
1: blood coming out of her eyes and ears and, and blood wherever. coming out of her wherever. Yeah. yeah.
0: And um, he literally ended up skipping a debate because Megyn was there. Now, what I find, what I found crazy at the time is that I'm looking at that like this is the most petty, insecure, weak thing I've ever seen from a candidate. Yeah. But all of Trump's people were like, "Look how macho he's being." He literally doesn't want tough questions from from Megyn Kelly. I just I found it so sad that they managed to flip what was the reality. Like this is insecure and petty. And they felt like this is masculine. That's crazy. It was that was crazy. Yeah. But anyway, they've been on bad terms for a long, long time. But apparently recently there was some event where they were at. I don't know if it was like some Turning Point USA event or some conservative conference. And Megyn Kelly talked about this recently, like, oh, yeah, you know, we made up, we talked or whatever. And I was like, oh, boy. So Trump decided to go on Megyn Kelly show. Now, you know, we talked about this a little beforehand off air. Where, you know, Megyn Kelly has a brand of like, I'm like right wing, but more like center right, a little more reasonable than some of the other psychos. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm a tough interviewer. Yeah. Right. And my thought was like, well, they re- she and Trump recently made up. I don't think she's going to go that tough on him because I, I know how smart she is and what she's capable of. And there's no way she's actually going to hit her potential for what this interview could be. Mm-hmm. Right. And you were like, no, nah, she'll go tough on him, but it'll be on very specific issues where she can kind of get away with it yes and that is exactly what happened <laughs> she took like the, the least controversial issues online like the biggest wave variety issues online mm-hmm. and she grilled him on those now the full interview isn't out yet so i'll be curious to see if she grills him on other things that ne- wouldn't necessarily be popular with her audience mm. right but this is the thing that we have right now this is the teaser clip that they released i'm gonna show you guys a little piece of it and then we'll react to it
2: this is the number one question they wanted me to ask you, that you shut the country down for six weeks in spring of 2020. Operation
3: Warp Speed Excuse me. rushed right? through. I didn't really... Let me, let me, I, let me ask the no, no, question. But Megan, this is I my let, audience's I question. The, i got to get know, it out. But I let the governors shut down. Some did and some didn't. Okay. Some didn't shut down at all.
1: Operation Warp Speed, though. Yeah. That was on the vaccines. They were rushed through. They have helped but also hurt a lot of people. And your White House actually supported mask mandates. So... Wouldn't you like a do-over on any of that?
3: Look, when this came in, nobody knew what the hell it was. It sounded like an ancient, you know, pandemic. You thought that was from 200 years ago or from 1917. We never thought you'd have a pandemic. Nobody had any idea. We got word that bad things were happening in China, right around the Wuhan clinic. And I was the one that said it was in the Wuhan clinic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I stuck with it, and it was. It was absolutely. It came out of the Wuhan clinic. But you take a look, and what we did was we, this was brand new. Nobody knew what the hell it was. There's dust. Somebody said there's dust coming in from China. And it's killing people in Italy, and it's killing people in France, and it's going to kill people here. And by the way, I shut it down to China. That was a big move. I saved thousands, hundreds of thousands of lives by doing it. But honestly, nobody, I don't blame a lot of people because nobody knew what it was. Now we do understand it somewhat. Nobody really understands it even now fully. But nobody knew what COVID was. And what it wasn't even vaccines? a name. I called it the China virus. I still do. I call it the China virus. It came out of China. You know, they call it COVID and COVID-19. As far as the vaccines concerned, uh, you had the original COVID. And... The vaccine had an impact on that. And there are some people, I will tell you, some friends of mine that are Democrat, I think they voted for me, but they're Democrat, very smart people, top people. They say, you know, I don't understand one thing. Why don't you talk more about the vaccine? It was one of the greatest things you've ever done. Now think of that. They say to me, and I say, I'm not gonna talk about it one way or the other. First of all, no mandates. I don't want mandates. I never had mandates. Florida sort of had a mandate because they were giving the vaccine. They were demanding everybody take the vaccine. That's another thing. But no mandates, no anything. I didn't demand anybody take it. But I have people on the other side, I do not not my side, although probably there are some on my side, too. They said, you saved 100 million people because I got it done in nine months as opposed to five years to 12 years. A lot of people. You're saw- proud of it. No, I'm not proud of it. I'm saying what Democrats think. Democrats. You,
1: I get it. I mean, and I'm not, and I'm I'm not about, somebody I'm who about, denies some of the good yeah, that the vaccines yeah. did. I, I lived through that, too. But, yeah. of course, a lot of people have been vaccine injured. And that's one of the questions. Those people are mad that they were rushed through and that they can't sue.
3: Well, I never gave mandates. And people have to make up their own, you know, make their own decision. as far as I'm concerned. Now, some places had mandates. They very strong mandates. Uh, largely Democrat governors and probably some Republicans, et cetera, et cetera. But there are Democrats that say, why aren't you talking about that? It's one of the—they really believe strongly. One said, you say—and this is very smart people. They said, you saved 100 million people worldwide.
0: All right, so Megyn Kelly also goes on at a different part in the clip to to bring up Dr. Fauci, of mm-hmm. course. And it was like, you know, you didn't fire Fauci, and like, you know, wasn't that a mistake? And, and Trump's reaction is basically the same, where he's like— Look, first of all, I ignored his advice a whole bunch. I didn't listen to his advice every single time. And second of all, he was previously a well-respected person. And so that's why we kept him in the administration. And also, look, we literally didn't know what was going on in the early times of the virus. And so everybody was kind of guessing as they went along. It was educated guesses. And you had to, like, adjust on the fly. That was basically his reaction to it. Yeah. So I have to say, in this clip, I'm way more with Trump than I am with Megyn Kelly. Even when Megyn Kelly, she made a point that I found so... Weasley, hmm. where it was a total false equivalence about the vaccine. Like, you know, yeah, it, sure, it helped, but it also hurt. Right. As if those things are freaking even at all. Right. Trump is right, not right that he saved 100 million lives, but he's right that there were tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or, or millions who were saved by the vaccine getting done and getting done quickly. And the thing that I, re- I despise about this so much, Crystal, you have no idea, is that Megyn Kelly is being such a goddamn wave rider here because she knows what's popular online is the vaccine skepticism. Well, guess what? I got news for you. That's the only freaking place it's popular. Because if you look at the polling data among normie Americans, everybody's like, well, obviously the vaccine was a good thing. Yeah. It's only the people online who are absolutely insane about this issue because they have terminal brain worms from listening to a bunch of idiots lie 24 seven about it. And so she's decided, oh, yeah, I'll go tough on Trump, but I'll go tough on Trump in a way where I'm riding the wave and I'm. I'm like, I'm the truth teller who's telling the truth that nobody will about this issue. And sir, those vaccines were really bad. And wasn't Fauci really bad? It's such a virtue signal for Megyn Kelly. There's like the things that she could have gone after him for. The list is endless. You could have brought up and maybe she does in the rest of the interview, to be fair. Right. I'm sure she doesn't go as hard as she goes on this one. But like the 91 criminal charges, the four indictments, the fact that the election wasn't stolen. And Megyn Kelly is definitely smart enough to know the election wasn't stolen. The cutting taxes for the rich, the destruction of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the increase of drone strikes over 400 percent, the killing of Soleimani, a top Iranian commander who was on the field fighting ISIS, the attempt to coup Venezuela, the ripping up the Iran agreement, the pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord, the outsourcing of 200,000 jobs when he ran as I'm the anti-outsourcing guy, like the number of things you could have—war with Mexico! He's out there saying we should have war with Mexico! You could—like, that's not something you brought up over this wave-righty, stupid-ass issue?
1: You know, it's interesting to me because, honestly, they're both playing to their audience. And what I mean by that is, yeah, Megan's audience, this is a big issue for them. They're super focused on it. You know, we did our focus group for Breaking Points this week. And um, the biggest criticism— that the focus group participants had I of remember. Trump was on COVID and lockdowns. And this, like, oh. the one of the best things he actually did during his presidency, which was ushering through Operation Warp Speed and getting the vaccines ready as quickly as they did, that was, like, their <laughs> critique of him. Although, interestingly, even though DeSantis, is like, sort of, tested out, leaning into that is like a contrast with Trump. None of the people who had that critique of Trump were actually DeSantis people. Right. So like mm-hmm. it hadn't computed for them in terms of like, therefore I should vote for Ron DeSantis, but that's an aside. Trump is showing his normie instinct here. Absolutely. You know, similar to how he's always been very clear cut on Social Security and Medicare. No cuts to entitlements, right? I mean, it's that sort of like, and same thing on abortion, taking a more moderate approach, at least rhetorically, even though he was the person who you know, put the Supreme Court justices in place to overturn Roe versus Wade. Now he's very much like, let's leave it to the states and I don't really want to talk about this, and privately recognize that this was a, a horrendous disaster for Republicans. This, to me, is him showing his normie instinct of where the broad general public is. And he is so far ahead in the Republican primary that he doesn't feel a need to have to placate that, them on every single little thing, because even the people who critiqued him in the fo- our focus group, which isn't scientific, whatever, whatever. But even the people who critiqued him on this, they were still voting for him. So.
0: I know. Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, uh, he he is so slippery. He is so slippery. There's a He's point in the interview, interview where he flips it so quickly back on DeSantis where it'll make your head spin how quickly he flipped it back on DeSantis. He was yeah. like... Uh... He was like, you know, DeSanctimonious, he shut down Florida. He shut down Florida. Everybody saw he shut down Florida. You know who didn't shut down their state? The governor of South Carolina didn't shut down their state. The governor of Tennessee didn't shut down their state. The governor of South Dakota didn't shut down their state. I never shut down anything. I left it all to the states and let the states decide on their own. I never shut down anything. But DeSanctimonious, he shut down Florida. And I was like, God damn. He flipped it and went on the offense like that. Yeah. It was so quick. And I was like, this is – and then I actually really like the line of – because any other Republican would be scared of their own shadow to admit, like – Actually, Democrats are with me on this issue. They would think that's like a, you know, like the scarlet letter or something. Like, yeah. Oh, Democrats are so bad. Trump's like, actually, there's a lot of Democrats out there, very smart people, very brilliant people. And they told me, sir, you should be bragging about this. You saved 100 million lives, sir. <laughs> and it just has that impact where, you know, if you're in sitting in a Megyn Kelly seat, you're like, oh, this isn't going how I thought it would go.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, he can get away with like if if a different Republican candidate said the same things, they wouldn't be able to get away with it. But because he's Donald Trump, like he can get away with um, even, you know, not going along with where the base is on this issue and still have them vote for him. The other thing that I was thinking about as he was talking and he was recalling like, you don't remember what it was like at the beginning. I was thinking back to before we, you know, it really hit here and before we had lockdowns and the whole thing really like sort of took hold in America, the person who was covering it the most was Tucker Carlson. And remember, there was a divide between Tucker at that point because it was like, oh, China, and it was this sort of like xenophobic Yeah, take it seriously.
0: Take the virus seriously.
1: It was was constant coverage. Take it seriously. This is a big deal. This is going to be coming here, et cetera. And um, Sean Hannity also on Fox News at that point, was taking the total different track. And so at the beginning, remember, there were there was research that was done that actually found that Tucker Carlson's audience was getting sick at a lower rate than Sean Hannity's audience because they were taking it more seriously. So there was an alternate timeline where it actually was like the right wing Trumpian thing to do to be obsessed with coronavirus. And so when he and actually take it really seriously and actually deal with it. And so. That's kind of what he's gesturing at there, is at the very beginning, there could have been a totally different um, political valence on all of these, like, you know, pandemic era protocols and how this all went, um, that just, you know, it happened to flip in the other direction. But he's completely right that— and. Obviously, it's stupid that any of this gets filtered through a partisan lens. It's like the worst part of our politics. But he is right that at the very beginning, there was a a moment of chaos where everybody was trying to figure out, based on their partisan affiliation, where they were supposed to be on this issue.
0: I think Trump is also hiding his power level on how much he loves the vaccines. I think if he was being honest with everybody... He would, he would say, I saved 100 million people. This was one of the best things I ever did. Yeah. I would love to see. See, this is why I really want—I mean, there's a million reasons I want him at the Republican debates. But if he was at the Republican debates and people tried to attack him on this, I think the clips would be legendary of him manhandling these idiots trying to wave ride the online idiocy. And well, he would and just he be like, also, "No, the vaccines were good. Shut up."
1: But you know what he could do is he could be like, "You're vaxxed, Ron. You know, I mean." Yeah, he, all he, of there's those. so
0: many angles they leave him, and he's gonna exploit every little weakness because that's what yeah, he does. They're
1: all I, actually that uh, Jessica Tarlev on Fox News. Mm-hmm. She did this to Janine Pirro yeah. the other day, and it worked right. like a charm. She was like, "What are you talking about safety, Janine? You're vaxxed and oh. you're perfectly fine." <laughs> and she had nothing to say about it. Nothing. Nothing to respond with that because it was fucking true. And so Trump could do that to any. Ron DeSantis or whoever wanted to try to act like, oh, the vaccines were so bad. Like, oh, well, tell me how many boosters you got. How many, you know, can we
0: just reflect on how insane it is? I am literally one of the most anti-Trump commentators in the world. And Megyn Kelly fumbled this so hard because she's trying to wave ride that I'm here defending Trump. It is unconscionable that I'm saying words in defense of Donald Trump, but that's how stupid the terminal online brainworms are. And that's how stupid audience capture is. Yeah. That this is where you put me, Megyn Kelly. And by the way, Megyn Kelly knows there's no fucking false equivalence. Oh, the vaccine did some good and it did some bad. No bitch. It did overwhelmingly good. And you know that.
1: Yes, that is done. And she tries to push it off. Like, this is my audience's question, you know, but if you're the interviewer, You are the one making the choice of what you're going to ask, how you're going to ask it, how you're going to frame it, et cetera. And um, she's, I think she is, when she wants to be, a phenomenally talented, aggressive. She's got that, she came from a legal background, like that prosecutorial approach. But, you know, she's not the only one that sees the writing on the wall with regard to Trump. And she probably doesn't want to be an outcast again for this, you know, whole administration going forward. They
0: have no shame. It's pathetic.
1: Um, Oh, yeah. I'm supposed to talk about these red flags and green flags in dating. That's great. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. So, all right. um, There was a poll from Change Research. Love this poll, by the way. It's really, really cool. So funny and fun and whatever, um, where they asked men and women... What are your red flags in terms of evaluating a potential dating partner? And what are your green flags? So red flags are like, no, that's a, you know, I don't like that. I'm probably going to avoid that person. And green flags are like, yes, that's a positive, et cetera.
0: And let's throw it up on screen right now. You guys can take a look at it as we go through it.
1: Yeah. Okay. So let's put the red flags up first because they're in some ways funnier. And they have it split here by gender and they have it ordered in the, um, by like what the women found to be the biggest red flags. And the number one biggest red flag for women in evaluating partners is that the potential partner identifies as a MAGA Republican. Absolutely nailed it. 76% of women said that is a red
0: 76%? Absolutely nailed it. Said that
1: is a red flag. Next highest was that they have no hobbies.
0: Nailed it. They're so right.
1: Next was that they say all lives matter, which of course, like direct reaction of Black Lives Matter. So these are all the hobbies is just you know neutral about your how how would that even come up is? on
0: a date, right? Like how would that come up?
1: What all lives? So matter? yeah, how
0: is it like? What are you, just out of nowhere? Somebody's gonna bring up Black Lives Matter, and the other person gonna be like, actually, all lives matter.
1: Well, <laughs> like how's that gonna work? I don't, people really wear their political affiliation very like proudly now weirdos do weirdos do a lot of people (laughs) do so if they pull up in a car with the thin blue line and the don't tread on me and whatever then you probably know they're like an all lives matter kind of kind of guy right yes um they say there are only two genders so that's a that's a
0: red flag for women 58 58 percent say that's a red red flag flag. so in other words they're like you better acknowledge trans people exist
1: yes um this one is funny they are so unbothered they never ask for details (laughs)
0: Huh. <laughs> yeah, so that's just that's like they're selfish. They don't care about me at all. They just care about themselves. That's oh, what I'm getting at. Oh, okay. Right?
1: Yeah, I guess so. That's I, what that I means. wasn't quite sure how to take that one. It's,
0: so it's not, it's like, it's never like, how's your day? Oh, what did Becky do to you at the office? It's, yeah, just, like, it's just like, how's your day? Whatever. I'm going to go fish.
1: Let me tell you about me. Yeah. Why did I
0: say fish? That's so random. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> um the next one but notably significantly less of a red flag than being a MAGA republican is they identify as a communist so 55 percent say that's a red flag
0: and a shout out to mac good politic guy he pointed this out to us this is a great great grab it's so there are way more women say it's a red flag if you're a MAGA republican than if you're a communist yeah so you could be all viva la revolution wearing a che guevara shirt talking about the glory of cuba yeah. and they're like all right, I like that. It's fine. <laughs> better than the better than the Trump sycophants.
1: Right, and then actually very close to that is they identify as conservative. So they identify as a communist as a red flag for 55%. They identify as a conservative as a red flag for 54%. So yeah. basically— you're just you're equal being like a standard issue conservative versus being a literal communist.
0: OK, and we have to point this yeah. one out. They listen to Rogan as a
1: 55 percent red flag.
0: Joe, <laughs> Joe, what's going on, man? Come on, Joseph. What, you, is, what is this? What is know, this?
1: Ella had actually our 15 year old had said this to me, that that's a red flag. That part. if they like, listen she, to Rogan, it's offered a red flag. that unprompted. Yeah, because there's a certain type, especially like a high school dude that's listening to Joe Rogan. You, you can imagine why?
0: They're very likely to be obsessed with jujitsu, to ask people if they've taken DMT, <laughs> to um, kind of uh, believe alien stuff. <laughs> like there's, there's a certain, there's like a whole litany of things that go with it. Uh, I th- you know, look, here's my theory. My theory is that um, it's a very, it, like the group has very clear delineating things about them. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, it almost feels like religious in a sense. Yeah. And so if you are a big time Rogan viewer, you're very likely to like always bring up to your partner like, do you see that Rogan episode? Brooke? Right. Right. <laughs> and the woman's probably like, oh, uh, geez. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's probably right. Um, this next one is interesting. They refuse to see the Barbie movie, 53%. They don't care about politics, 50%. Say that's a red flag. See, that one's interesting to me.
0: I guess 50%. I could see 50%, but yeah. I always felt like... Apolitical is relatively inoffensive. Um, being political and agreeing is inoffensive. Even being political and agreeing on most stuff or half of stuff is inoffensive. I only find it offensive once you cross that like 50% threshold where it's like they're political and they also disagree with you on like 75% of things or 100% mm. of things. That's where it's like, oh, this is going to be a little much. You yeah. Know what
1: I'm yeah. I mean, look, our politics are very similar and that's not an accident. Like, it's important to me that a partner share like similar base values and worldview because it informs not just, you know, we're going to agree in politics, but it also informs things like how you're gonna raise your kids and what's your general outlook on life gonna be so I've never had a problem with people who want their partner to have similar politics I know some people hold that up as like oh what is our country coming to that these women say they won't even date a conservative but I've never found that to be an issue or
0: but I and I also do think most people do date people with relatively similar politics (laughs) yeah i I feel like that's kind of a default thing that a lot of people do and to your point because if there's massive disagreement on that that means it's very likely there's going to be massive disagreement in other areas that are seemingly non-political you're
1: going to have a culture clash yeah of course
0: like like let just to give one example like you pointed out raising the kids uh what if one person is super disciplinarian this is how it goes. Right. And then the other person is more like, "No, we're kind. We kind of walk walk them through it carefully. We don't have like really strict hard rules for no reason." You know what I mean? Like, you could have a total culture clash over that.
1: Yes, I I totally agree. After there, for women, it really falls off. But just to give you a few of like, because we got a bunch of conservative red flags at the top, the uh, left-coded, outside of being an actual communist, the left-coded things here rate much lower in terms of being red flags. 19% say if you identify as a liberal, that's a red flag. 19% say that if you say Black Lives Matter, or I'm sorry, 14% say if you say Black Lives Matter, that's a red flag. Um, they send green text. I don't know what that means. What Let does me
0: just that mean? Uh, hold on. Can I just interject here yeah. to say the one where it's only nineteen percent is a red flag for if they frequently post on social media. Yeah. Wrong. That should be a hundred percent. Do that as a red I flag agree. because I people agree. who are twenty four seven on social media uh, their, their brain is melting.
1: And then also 23% say if they talk about politics frequently, that's a red flag. So it's more of a red flag more often that they don't care about politics than they talk about politics a lot. Yeah, so that's kind of interesting mm-hmm. for the men. Um, the men, it was a little less, it's a little more all over the place. Well,
0: identify as a communist is number one number red one, flag for men.
1: 64% red flag for men. And then next is, uh, they identify as a MAGA Republican. at Oh no, I'm sorry, they have no hobbies. That's a problem 60. for men and women. Yeah,
0: that's a huge problem. MAGA yeah.
1: Republican is fifty nine percent red flag. Um for men. And then where do we go? Forty one percent, they say all lives matter,
0: 41 42- percent into astrology.
1: Yeah, they they say that's a red flag. That's yeah, that's interesting, right? Yeah, um, at forty-two percent, they are so unbothered; they never ask for details. Kind of similar to the women there in yeah. terms of concern. So, so
0: basically, the overall takeaway, and let's get to the green flags. Now, yeah. but the overall takeaway is like political extremes plus not having a hobby and not caring about your partner are the biggest red flags. I would say.
1: Yeah, I would say that's true. Okay, let's put up the green flags. Number one green flag for both men and women is that they read. I ne- wouldn't necessarily have seen that coming. How about I actually
0: you? do kind of find that shocking. I think it's, it's like people view it as a signifier of like you're intelligent and you're like reasonable, thoughtful, thoughtful, you're patient. Like that's how I kind of interpret that is that that's that's a stand-in for those things.
1: Yeah, uh, the like unanimity of that though kind of surprised me.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: The next one that was uh, number one for both, number two for both men and women was researching for best deals and rates before buying.
0: That's because uh, people are struggling. The working class is struggling. They don't have that much money, so they want somebody who's prudent with their money.
1: Yeah, see, I... But on the other hand, I think it can be... There's... It's good to be, like, prudent and careful with your money, but I think it can go really bad when it goes into being, like, cheap. You know what I mean? Of
0: course, but I honestly, I view this as a stand-in for, like, they have a good credit rating and they're responsible. Mm. That's how I interpret these words Mm. here. But I understand Mm. what you're saying. If somebody's too frugal and too cheap, that could be, like, stop.
1: The next green flag for men is they look better in person.
0: That's weird. Right? That's like these people are all, uh, they have uh, online syndrome for from dating sites. You know, right. that's what that sounds I, that's like That's what I me. thought yeah. too,
1: or like, you know, the Instagram filters or the TikTok filters or whatever. They're like, okay, I want you to actually not just be like catfishing me, I want you to actually look a certain way in real life. And that was kind of high for women too. It says um, 51% green flag for women, if you look better in person. Um, For women, 60% say it's a green flag if they say Black Lives Matter. What are some of the other big ones here? They take candid pictures of you.
0: I literally don't know what that means. I have no idea what that means.
1: It's a 50% green flag for women, 34% green flag uh, for men. And uh, for men, 44% say it's a green flag if they're not on social media, 46%. Uh-oh. For men, say it's a green flag if they say there are only two genders. So there's a real, like, uh, gender divide on that
0: There one. really is a gender... I don't know what it is about dudes that, like, they just... The whole trans thing, Just they just don't like it. It's very strange to me. It's like, I, I like don't know why this is controversial. Yeah, I don't it's know like, why this, this is controversial. Look, there's some percentage of the population that just is trans. They were effectively, quote-unquote, born in the wrong body. Yeah, I don't know why that's so. It, that is no more offensive to me than some people happen happen to be gay, right? Right. Like, why is that?
1: Well, it's interesting because oftentimes the um, people who are super anti-trans they fen- they frame it as like, oh, I'm defending women. Or they
0: do the I'm defending science, like both of those things. Yeah, Yeah,
1: but a lot of times it's for, oh, women's sports, and I'm defending women Mm -hmm. and protecting women, et cetera. I don't want the men in the women's bathrooms. And clearly the women are, like, on a very different page (laughs) based on these red flags Mm -hmm. and green flags. So, uh, yeah, I think it has a lot to do with this discomfort with their own sense of masculinity so
0: i just want to point one more out yeah. uh they frequently post on social media that's only a six percent green flag for women and a five percent green flag for men so at least they have it right on this side yeah, of the equation true. they're like that's probably not a good thing but let me ask you what do you view as the biggest uh green flag
1: oh jeez. um
0: i can answer first if you want you, uh, you can think about it while no I, answer. I know what mine
1: is it's a uh, like labor supporter
0: that's that's funny. <laughs> That's very particular and unique. Yeah. <laughs> There's not many people who would say that.
1: That's real for me. That's yeah. very real.
0: <laughs> I would say um, kind, competent, and chill. Okay. So you have to be kind, you have to be competent, and you have to be chill. And, and you fit all of those.
1: Oh, well, thanks, babe. Well, of course. And you have good politics, so... I like to think so. <laughs> it um, is my job. <laughs> last one I have to point out here uh, on the Rogan the Rogan green flag side. So for women 7% do say that listening to Joe Rogan is a green flag. For men, a full quarter of men say that if their prospective partner listens to Joe Rogan it is a green flag. So big uh, another big gender divide there. I feel
0: like another big thing is like ha- having some hobbies in common. Yeah. So you and I both like politics that's big because then we always have something to talk about yeah and then we also both uh i got you into golf a little bit that's mm-hmm. fun and yeah then we, i we, don't
1: know if we've revealed that to the world yeah uh, yeah i don't know either this and we play news. like
0: we used to uh for a while and you know your knee had some issues but for a while we would play tennis and just try to volley as much as possible like we have similar things that
1: we watch, like to watch do. the
0: same shows like th- those things make it so that it's very harmonious yeah it's not like i'm gonna go do this thing and you go do that you and we both saying?
1: really enjoy being like sports parents <laughs>
0: Yeah, in the kids' that's soccer right. games, yeah, yeah. the basketball
1: games, and whatever. We yeah. actually really like that. My coaching
0: so. credentials have shot through the roof.
1: That's right. Yeah, yeah. in a very mm-hmm. short period of time. Yeah. Indeed. So, anyway, there you go. That's what people are thinking about prospective partners. Very interesting stuff. And with that being said, let's go ahead and jump into um, interview with former presidential candidate, current co-chair of the Ford Party, and now novelist, the one and only Andrew Yang. And joining us now is the co-author of the new book. I have it right here. The Last Election, the one and only Andrew Yang. Great to see you in person.
0: Great to be here, guys. Star- Congrats. Congrats. A little starstruck. I'm a little starstruck. This
1: is, your, is this your first My
0: time first time meeting him in person. Oh. You know, like, so I've met uh, Marianne. I've met in person, obviously.
4: <laughs> I met Bernie once. But, like, is the first time meeting you, man. I'm a little starstruck. Everyone you should know, Kyle is even better looking in person more <laughs> handsome. Now he's hitting on me. I like this. <laughs> Congrats on, on the studio and the entire operation, really. I've I've been overjoyed to see your growth and, and success over this last number of months. Well, That's thank you. That's very sweet of you to say. Thank you. I
1: know you probably heard me and Sagar talk about it a million times, but when we first started rising, which, of course, ends up, you know, building out to all of these things, um... The interview we did with you where we just like, you know, I think we asked you some contentious questions, but they were just like, you know, we took your candidacy seriously and asked you policy questions. And that took off. That was when we were like, okay, there's something here that we can build on. So we've always we don't need these corporate folks.
4: We can hang up Mm. our own single breaking points. I
1: think
0: he was the first one to say, hey, we should decriminalize psychedelic drugs. Right. Wasn't that one of the big moments that like because I think that was you were interviewing him. You asked him that question and he was like. Yeah, I think we should decriminalize it, and that became sort of a big deal, because even Bernie at the time wasn't saying that, and everybody was like, "Oh, this is awesome."
1: Yeah. Well, I think people just always resonated with, even when you had a response that maybe was not going to be particularly politically, po- politically like popular, it always felt direct, like you were giving your best sense and your best view on the issue. So oh, thanks, I've always And by the
0: about way, you, uh, Californ- this actually just happened. California just passed a bill through the assembly. Two decriminalized psychedelic drugs.
1: Yeah. So, so got you to were, see what you were ahead. ahead. If anyone's going
0: to do it, it's California. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. But you're that's right. Cool. You like, so it's, it's legal thing. here
1: in D.C., isn't
0: it? There's two other places. I don't know if D.C. is one of the places, but there's two places where it's already uh, decriminalized. I think it's five psychedelics. Gotcha. So. That's exciting. You were ahead of the curve on that.
1: Anyway, let's get to the uh, the reason for the visit today, which we're very excited to have you in town for. So, you know, first question, just what inspired you to write the book and why fiction rather than you've written a couple books in the past that were nonfiction. Why go in this direction?
4: Uh, Yeah, so I've been trying to figure out how to paint a picture and get the message out about why our uh, democracy may or may not stand the test of time. Uh, And one of the things that my advisors always said to me when running for president, maybe your advisors did the same thing, uh, Crystal, is they kept kept whispering bio, bio to me every time I spoke. Mm. And what they're trying to say is tell your story, use your biography, make people understand who you are. And it was unnatural for me because the way I spoke most, most often was in facts and statistics because right. that's kind of the way mm-hmm. my, my mind works. And so they were pushing me to use my bio because they said, look, people are attached to people and stories more than anything else. And so this novel is our attempt to tell a story about an election in the not so distant future that has a third party presidential candidate and maybe the election doesn't work out quite the the way we would want. And then what does that mean? So uh, it was hopefully an entertaining way to get the message out in a new way. So what... Inspired you to
0: write this book? Was it real world events or one of the things I mentioned to Crystal before the interview is like, are you like a Game of Thrones fan? Like, I know I'm a big Game of Thrones dork and I love how it's political but also
4: fiction at the same time. So, what exactly inspired this? Well, I'm a fan of Game of Thrones. I thought it was the best show ever until that last season. Agreed.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we're just going to (laughs) pretend that one
4: didn't happen. Yeah, write that one off. Uh, uh, And I had so many experiences running for president that I genuinely did want to share, but. Wanted to share them not as some kind of strange <laughs> tell all, but I was like, oh, I could actually put them in a Games of Thrones type narrative or a House of Cards, also before that went mm-hmm. off the rails. I think there was like a lot of season or two where we, I think we pretend that also didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh, I'm a, a fan of entertainment. Um, there are actually some folks in Hollywood who are uh, looking at screen rights the last election now. And it's written more or less, I, I think, like a miniseries or movie. I hope. I don't know if that you got that when, when you were reading it.
1: Yeah, definitely. No, that was actually one of the first things that came to mind for me is I wondered if Hollywood would pick up on it. Um, talk to me about your co-author who really, you know, became very prominent based on his last book, which was called The Next Civil War. So you get the next civil war, now the last election, in which he posits the very real possibility of a civil war happening here in the U.S. And he gives a variety of potential scenarios under which that could unfold. Um, What drew you to him? And are you of the belief that we're like on the brink of a civil war? I
4: interviewed Stephen Marsh on the next civil war on my podcast when the book came out and thought it was very smart and well-researched. He actually spent months and months talking to generally very unsavory types mm-hmm. <laughs> here in the, the U.S., who maybe for them, Civil War is, you know, a desired thing, not not something that's off the table. And we became friendly and friends. And when I had uh, the first ideas for the last election, I wanted a writing partner who had more experience writing novels. Uh, Stephen had written both fiction and nonfiction. I've, mm. I've only written nonfiction. I was like, how the heck do you even— craft a novel yeah and so I, I reached out to Stephen said would you have an interest in collaborating on this and Stephen said I have all this research for my nonfiction book that I've actually been trying to find a home for and I could put it in this fictional narrative and uh, and so um, he said but in order for me to, to do this I want to make sure there's a there there and so Stephen spent several hours interviewing me on my experiences running for president to see if he thought that there was enough detail and substance to make for a compelling story. Happily he said there was uh, after <laughs> that first conversation. <laughs> oh, or even really after that first conversation he was like I could interview you for 30 hours not just 3. Let's schedule the next one and let's get started. So you were able to mix real-world personal experience from running for
0: president with sort of a meta-fictional narrative and put it into one book and and put it out there? That's the gist of how this came about?
4: Yeah, I I had a story I wanted to share, but I also know that people would rather be entertained than uh, educated. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) So we wanted to package it in uh, an independent presidential Mm -hmm. campaign with the campaign manager... And a journalist who has a story that they're looking to share. Uh, and then Stephen brought his own perspective. So it was a lot of fun doing the interviews and then getting the pages back uh, from Stephen as to what the um, the story w- would look like. So uh, I, I had a blast writing it. I hope this book does well so that we can have it be a movie and then write a sequel. And, and hopefully it's not our last election. I mean, the, there is a serious message here, which is uh, we are— at the brink. And Crystal, when you asked about, hey, do I think a civil war yeah. uh, is a possibility? I think that we've already experienced many things that we would have thought were unthinkable four years ago, Absolutely. even when I, I was running. Yeah, uh, And I think, unfortunately, we're in for more dystopian uh, events and occurrences here in the U.S., including various forms of political violence.
1: Are you thinking just about January 6th or are there other things that lead you to that place of feeling like it's a nation on the brink?
4: So that there is January 6th as the most uh, evident, um, but also the uh, attack on Paul Pelosi, the shooting up of the congressional softball game, the uh, self-reported assassin who is uh, going to target a Supreme Court justice. Uh, the first person showing up at the FBI headquarters with a gun and then gets killed. Mm -hmm. So uh, these are all relatively um, isolated uh, occurrences, but the discontent in the country just keeps on going up and up by any quantitative measure. Uh, You you probably know about this guy Peter Turchin who wrote a book that came out recently called End Times, and he has this model about political stress. The political stress index in the U.S. is at literal Civil War levels. last time it was at this level was 1860. So uh, unfortunately, I think it's going to get worse, not better, because if you think about the dynamics we're in, we're hyper-polarized, the media organizations, with the main exception of breaking points, Mm -hmm. (laughs) separating us into ideological teams and tribes, saying, hey, it's your team, your team, and Mm -hmm. then social media pouring gasoline on the whole thing. And which of these is going to get better? I mean, unfortunately, they're all probably going to get worse. So I agree
0: on the political instability point. Um, I think once we cross over into the line of like, is it going to reach a civil war? That's where I feel, I have a hard time conceptualizing that. When, so when you say yeah.
4: civil war, column, and, and this is one of the reasons why that, that term is in some ways the wrong term. So civil war would, would think, hey, there's an organized political rebellion. I mean, obviously that's unrealistic. Yeah, like in a the literal war. Where, yeah, where yeah. you have the U.S. Uh, is, uh, is so uh, dominant militarily and, and whatnot that like imagining some kind of, um, insurrection that had any chance of succeeding is ridiculous. Um, but Stephen, through his uh, unfortunately his, his painstaking research, says, look, civil war is technically technically defined as a thousand victims of political violence in a year. And mm-hmm. can you imagine that happening in the United States of America? Yeah, I could see that yeah, I could see that that is so can you imagine low levels of radicalist violence uh, in in the us? Yeah, you can. Yeah. And then then could that reach a point where you had dozens uh, of deaths cumulatively? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, That that is realistic. So
0: I could see like I could definitely see and a lot of this hinges on the 91 criminal charges against Trump. But if he gets found guilty, I could see riots. Um, I could see some instances of targeted political violence. You brought up up Paul Pelosi before. I think that's a good example of it. I feel like we could see more of that. But yeah, I mean, beyond that, I don't know, Crystal, let me ask you what you think. Do you think that would like uh, snowball into something worse? Because I feel like Trump's lost a little bit of a punch because every time now he's under some indictment, he's like, everybody can come support me at the courthouse or whatever. And like seven people show up. And I feel like that might be because the last time he told them to show up at January 6th, you know, there were a lot of feds there. These people got brought up on charges. A lot of them are in prison now. So they feel like I don't want to get burned again. Yeah. What do you make of all that?
1: i In my opinion, it's kind of a matter of degrees like Andrew is talking about. Do I think that there would be another like North versus South or rural versus urban or college or whatever, you know, red versus blue, like nationwide? No, I don't see that. But you have enough who have um, really taken to heart some very extreme fringe views where I mean, think about January 6th, right? Those people who I think should be held accountable for their actions, I support the sentences against them, all of that stuff. Many of them thought that they were like patriots. Totally. Of course. Doing an honorable, like the right righteous thing like that were back in 1776 kind of a deal. And so when you have so much uh, like a sizable chunk of the population that really sees things that way that sees things in these existential terms, like you can't look at that landscape and not see some danger there, for sure.
4: Yeah, I became friends with the late, great Norm MacDonald, uh, the the comedian, and -hmm. he he said that the problem isn't good versus evil. It's good versus good, Mm. where the people on the other side genuinely think that they're fighting the good fight and doing the right thing. And to your point, Crystal, there are millions of Americans who have very, very strong points of view that are very different from mine. Yeah. But they think that they'll be defending the country by taking actions that might unfortunately include harming someone at some point.
1: We did a um, focus group at Breaking Points. We just commissioned it um, with New Hampshire Republicans. Thank you. It's actually a big deal for us. And so we're really excited. And one of the things that really stuck with me is you got eight people, you know, almost all of them. If you met them, if they were in your life, you wouldn't think anything unusual. There are a couple that you could tell like, okay, I'm probably not going to talk politics with this person, right? But most of them it was just like, you know, your friend's mom or whatever. And then this question about the the pandemic came up, and almost all of them were like, Democrats are planning a pandemic to rig the next election, which you know, in my mind is obviously like a wild insane untrue conspiracy theory and, you know, should be relegated to a, a fringe view. But this was the mainstream view among these individuals. So like if you're looking at the world and the country through such a different lens and it's like really solidified and you really believe this in your heart. Yeah, it changes your definition of what a righteous action would be or what, you know, how you should be governing yourself. And like I said, it does creates a landscape that's incredibly fraught because in a lot of ways we're just inhabiting completely different worlds.
4: Oh, yeah. And I, as you would imagine, met hundreds or even thousands of individual Americans around the country when I was running for office. Uh, And uh, some of them were getting very, very different messages than I was, Mm. (laughs) let's say. And Well, uh, you
1: had bipartisan, cross-partisan support. So I'm sure you had a lot of people with a lot of different views that were supporting you.
4: Yeah, and uh, there were folks that, and some of the most touching conversations I had were with people who supported Donald Trump and were exploring, supporting me. And I thought that was awesome. Um, and they sometimes would say things. It's like, Whoa, like that, That like, like I I don't know where you got that particular, um, a piece of information, (laughs) Um, but I wanted to try and bring those people in to the campaign and my experience with them. Just let me know how, uh, real the, the, danger is because there's almost like a I, I liken it to a funhouse mirror version of reality. Like they're just people in very, very different information silos. Uh and so because of that, I now think that certain things are on the table that most of us would prefer not to be on the table.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, how do we fix that polarization, though? Because I've gone back and forth on this a number of times where I've gone through stretches where it's like I'm going to be incredibly sympathetic and try to walk people through stuff very slowly and, like, you know, put my hand out and try to help them. And, you know, there are times where I feel like, well, this isn't even close to working. And if anything, I might be, like, feeding delusions further by acting like, oh, this is in the realm of that what is which is respectable. And then I go through other periods where I'm like... I just got to sort of like draw a hard line and give tough love and say, no, this is you're not acknowledging something that's true or real. And you need to do that in order for us to proceed. So I don't know how to fix that. So do you have any thoughts on how how we fix that and how we try to reach people? Because I I could see an argument for every approach to try to do that. But clearly what I know right now is whatever we're doing ain't working too well.
4: Yeah. So I talked about the political dynamics, then media and then social media. And, And so I'd like to try and attack each one. And your experience, Kyle, is actually very normal insofar as there's uh, – there have been a lot of studies showing that if you mm-hmm. are in a particular tribe, there's not some piece of information I can show you. that be like, oh, right, yeah. like, now <laughs> like I'm convinced. It. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> and that's
2: sad. Thank yeah. you told
4: me that. Yeah. Uh, if anything, actually – people tend to become more entrenched in their tribalism. This is one of the reasons why some people are like, how the heck can these people keep supporting Donald Trump after this, that, that? And it's like, what you don't understand is that they actually become even deep, deeper in their alignment with him because they feel like he's being attacked. Right, right. yeah. And, and the the right way to think of it is... Sports allegiance. Right. Where, you know, like if I'm a Patriots fan, um, then you say Tom Brady <laughs> did XMI I'd be like, oh, you know, it's like it, it's it, it's not rational. Uh, it's tribal. The, the problem in the U.S. is that we have cordoned us our, ourselves off into really two dominant tribes and then said there are these two. And so I, I joke, but it's serious. How would you feel if you were in a sports league and there were only two teams about the other team's fan base? Like eventually you'd start hating them. <laughs> you'd completely yeah. really mm-hmm. hate their guts. Uh, and so if we can change that, then we'd have a chance. Uh, and I talk about the folks who voted for Trump, includes family members of mine, that the big thing for me is, look, there are tons of deeply good moral Americans who voted for Donald Trump. Uh, and and so there's some folks hearing that be like, that, that cannot be. But you're talking about tens of millions of of our fellow Americans, and they voted for him in large part because they're just getting this very, very different version of reality. And so it's not that you can say, okay, here, I'm going to edify you and say, here's the correct version of reality. That that might, in my opinion, might not be effective uh, at scale. So what we can do, hopefully, and what I'm working on with, with Ford, is just try and get rid of the party primaries and make it so that instead of there these two dominant narratives and tribes, that you're allowed to adopt a greater variety. And then if you have that more, like imagine a sports league where you have eight teams, <laughs> or in, in my mind, I mean, eight's too many. Um, when I talked to a political scientist, uh, he said the ideal number of political parties in the U.S. is uh, four, five, or six. Hmm. If you can get to four or five or six, then maybe we can have a a much more productive dynamic than it's like, hey, here are like the the two versions.
1: I sort of just to respond a little bit to Kyle and then I've got a um, follow up question for you there, Andrew. I, I sort of have come to the view that. My operating principles should be one of like compassion, understanding, empathy for people who see the world in a totally different way, Um, and an also very adversarial view to the you know people at the top who know better and are just profiting off of this cycle of horror that you're discussing. That's a great distinction. And the other pieces, you know, but I I sort of feel at this point like those other dynamics, the dynamics inherent in the political system, in the media ecosystem. And in the social media ecosystem, I mean, these are forces, These, this is like trying to fight gravity. You know, I mean, if until you change, I think some of those fundamental dynamics, you are really, um, you know, it, it's just impossible. I won't even say like you're it's an uphill fight. It's just impossible. So do you see in terms of the work of the forward party, do you still see ranked choice voting as sort of like, you know, the key reform that could help to really shift the political dynamics in the country? Um,
0: that's got to be the main
4: path, right? If you want to get to those number yeah. of parties. Yeah, so ranked choice voting is the key lever. But when someone asked me, Crystal, hey, how much does it cost to fix American democracy or give us hope? I actually have a price tag, believe it or not. It's $200 million. And that's not that much in the scheme of things because we're going to spend $8 billion beating each other up in 2024. Now, when you talk about the impossibility, you're fighting gravity. Um, you have done the impossible In starting breaking points. I mean, people look at it and think, oh, like independent media, it's like you got, um, you know, like the the cable networks, then you have uh, the indies who stay below a certain level. I mean, you guys have broken the mold. Um, Now, if there were enough breaking points type things, maybe in every community, maybe we'd have a better shot because people would be getting messages about their community. Uh, There's a price tag on that, too. Now, what you've done has been an awesome act of journalistic entrepreneurship and, uh, you know, and and you're hyper talented. And it's not realistic that there is like a legion of (laughs) of Kyles and Crystals and Saugers and everyone else. Um, But the two hundred million dollar price tag I'm talking about is Uh, trying to get rid of party primaries in 10 states at a cost of $20 million each. And the price tag is real because the ballot initiative that... Got rid of party primaries and moved to ranked choice voting in the state of Nevada in 2022, cost $17 million. 53% of Nevadans voted for it, 47% against, even though both both major parties came out against it. They said, oh, no, primaries are good. And then most Nevadans said, no. <laughs> like, I'd, <laughs> we I'd much disagree. rather. Yeah, we disagree. So if you had $200 million and you put that to work in Arizona and, um, uh, uh, Utah, North Dakota, like a whole series of states and um, successfully passed it in five states. Imagine if there were 10 U.S. senators who all of a sudden didn't have party primaries. They would become more lucid and reasonable uh, and consensus driven like that. Because right now, the great fiction we have is that our leaders have to make 51 percent of us happy to get reelected. It's not true. They just have to keep the 10 to 12 percent of their party's base off their backs. Right. And that's how they, they can win. So if you change it so that the fiction becomes reality, then we have a chance. And then you can have different versions of reality and different narratives coming together in whole new ways, rather than have institutions defending this shrinking island, which is why we feel the way we feel right now.
0: So let me ask you what you think of this. So first of all, I 100% support ranked choice voting. I think it would be phenomenal. I think we should have it all across this country. I think overnight third parties become more viable if you do it. Um, Like you said, some places have actually already done it, and I think that that's a, a wonderful thing. My only concern about what we laid out here is I don't think it's a panacea in this sense. I think if you have rank choice voting, but you still have the corrupting money of the corrupting influence of big money in politics, uh, billionaire money, lobbyist money, PAC, super PACs, all that stuff, then I think basically we'll go from two parties to let's say six parties, and those six parties will still be largely beholden to their corporate donors and not necessarily to the people who put them in power. So, what do you say
4: in response to that? Yeah, man. I mean, consider me part of the 85% of Americans who want to get money out of politics, you know? I mean, the the question is, how are we going to do it if you have these two two parties that are uh, bought and paid for, essentially? (laughs) And then you're right that if you had— um, so one of the jokes people tell, I think, Crystal, you and I had a conversation like this, like, hey, how do you keep Ford Party from becoming corrupt? And I laugh because it's like we don't run shit. <laughs> so anyone who wants to give us money like, right now, the people who are giving us money are genuinely patriotic and altruistic because they they want, uh, you know, more choice. Um, but if you could have a system where what 85 percent of us want, including Overturning Citizens United and getting money out of politics, which unfortunately includes a constitutional amendment, very hard to get done. Um, but that is the path. Uh, we have to actually let uh, what the American people want become policy as opposed to right now where we're suppressing it. But I'm totally with you. If we get money out of politics, then we'd have a chance. So l- let me ask you about because what you came into
0: prominence with universal basic income being your rallying cry. And at first I was actually kind of hesitant. And now I'm kind of embarrassed to think I was hesitant because my gut reaction was very, like, kind of childish, just like the, like, is that possible? It was one of those sorts of Mm. things. And then the more I read about it and, and, you know, now we have pilot programs all over the place, the more it's like, actually, this is, like, very possible and very straightforward and a great way to help people. So I'm almost embarrassed that originally I was, like, hesitant to agree with. And that's that's really what put you on the map. Um, But then when you launched the forward party, it looked like UBI was no longer one of the top priorities. What happened with that?
4: Oh, uh, UBI is still something I think is a a necessity and an inevitability. (laughs) And inevitability, sorry to say this. Uh, The question is, so I ran for president on UBI. It went from 27% approval to 65% approval over those years, in large part because of people like you. Thank you. Um, Now, before I ran for president, I thought, oh, if two-thirds of us want something, we're going to get it. it." And then now I'm like, oh, it turns out that— We won't get it. Uh, 74% of us want term limits. Are we going to get that? 85% of us want money out of politics. Are we going to get that? Uh, Right now, there's not... A strong enough relationship between what we want and what we get. So what I've determined is that the reason for that is that you have a two-party system where you have a congressional approval rating of 20% and a re-election rate of 94% of incumbents. So in that system, they do not need to do anything for us. So my mission is to change that system so that what we want is actually what we get. And then you'll see me pounding the table for UBI all day long. The problem right now is that, uh, you could put anything, uh, addressing AI on the list. By the way, that's also 85%. <laughs> and um, and then you create uh, a movement for it, but that movement will fail in the two-party system. The two-party system will dilute it and run it aground and make sure it does not happen. So now I'm going back to first principles and saying, okay, let's get a better political system in place, and then I will be there fighting for UBI. Now, there are some folks who are part of Ford right now who are then going to disagree with me at that point. Yeah, And that's totally cool. If we had a functional system where I could have those disagreements with a chance of it passing, sign me up for that every day. But what I will not do is I will not pretend to my people or myself that we're going to get it done in this system.
1: Gotcha. And so for people who, um, you know, don't haven't followed it closely or just so people that are aware, what are the the core values of forward party? Is it just democracy reform or are there other sort of like core issue priorities that you'll require in an eventual candidate?
4: Um, It's uh, actually listening to what your constituents want. It's ranked choice voting and nonpartisan primaries. It's grace and tolerance. So we want to put down the swords and weapons and say, look, I'm not here to demonize you. I'm just trying to solve problems. It's uh, responding to data. Now, uh, those are fairly broad principles. Yeah. And most people looking at that would be like, oh, like that doesn't sound uh, very, very, you know, like problematic or offensive. Maybe it doesn't have as much teeth as some folks would like. And I think you and I, Crystal, have had conversations to that effect. Um, but one of the the things um, that motivates me is I care about the people in Mississippi and Massachusetts, where if you end up adopting a stance on a particular social issue, let's say,
1: mm-hmm.
4: and this is the game that the two parties want us to play, you're essentially saying, hey, because here's what the two parties want you to do. They want you to say, what are you really and because it's me, they'll be like, hey, you're actually a dem. <laughs> and then for other people, they might say something different. Um, and so we want to make the forward party something that can actually help a school board member or a city council member in Mississippi make a positive case to their community, as well as folks in, in uh, let's say, New York or Massachusetts.
0: I I guess I I slightly struggle with that, at least insofar as like, I feel like some things are beyond the pale and we need to label it as such. Like the sentiment you're laying out, I fully agree with. And I think you should approach people with sympathy, et cetera, all that stuff. Uh, You know, but then it's like I fear when you look at somebody like Trump, 91 criminal charges against him. You know, I've covered them in detail on my show and I feel like they have a lot of merit to them. He tried to overthrow the last election he literally said on truth social let's suspend the constitution to put me in power and it's like is there a way i can respond to that saying it's wrong where people who support trump will still be like yeah you're reasonable and let's like work it out you know what i mean like these i feel like we butt into we butt heads with a lot of things here where it's like, are we really going to come to some sort of a agreement or middle ground? You know what I'm saying?
4: Yeah, I, I do know. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why we're all so concerned about the 2024 uh, uh, election upcoming. Uh, if you listen to election results in the rule of law and data, then obviously the Trump election denialism <laughs> kind of go, goes off in a direction, as well as if you say, look, we should be accepting of our fellow Americans. I mean, there, there are folks uh, in the Trump camp that are not terribly accepting of, of different types of Americans. Mm-hmm. So, uh, we'd like to think that you can go to people with some openness and say, look, we totally disagree on this set of uh, facts or issues, but I'm not here to judge you for it. Like, I'm not here to label you. I'm not going to, to call you, uh, you know, ignorant or racist on the basis of the fact that you're on another side of this set of issues. And I met thousands of Americans, again, who would disagree with me on a lot of things, but they're shockingly open Uh, to someone who will sit down with them and say, look, I mean, look at me. Like, I'm an Asian-American guy from the coasts who, like, you know, was running around saying, hey, let's give money to everybody. Uh, And there are folks you would never imagine would be perfectly happy to engage with me and maybe even support me. Uh, That very, very much stereotype-defying or mold-breaking. And that gives me hope. Uh, And invigorates me. But it also shows that there is a a lot more commonality if you actually respect someone and will say to them. And the the most touching thing, there's a woman who watched Fox all the time who said, Yang's the only dem I'd support because he doesn't seem like he's judging me. Mm. And that was really touching to me because. I'll that. Yeah. and, And. uh, I don't judge her I mean I just want her life to be better
0: yeah I mean I've, I get exactly what you're saying and like I feel like if you're talking about an issue like abortion where you know to, hey this person's pro-life this person's pro-choice or hey this person's for slightly stronger immigration laws or this person wants a lower you know, tax rate or whatever I'm totally on board with you there it's like I struggle on the things that I view as like really and nobody should support this like for example just to give an example the uh, every Republican candidate now has called for at one time or another war with Mexico to go after the drug cartels and I look at that and i'm like if you support that like i want to be nice to you but at the same time i also want to be like don't support that you know what i mean so it's almost like in certain instances and this is the smug liberalness coming out of me but i look at that i'm like i am going to judge you on that one i'm not going to judge you for reasonable disagreements but once we get into the non-reasonable area i feel almost compelled to be like and i'm willing to discuss it with them i'm willing to discuss it debate it whatever they want to do but i just feel like at, at moral judgment has to happen somewhere there's some line you know what i mean um, Go ahead, I
1: don't want to. We we did have some of these debates before, and so I don't want to just like rehash the debates that we've had previously. But um, to me, the place that I struggle is on two areas. Number one, I still don't totally understand why. It having it as a party structure is the right direction versus having it as like nonprofit organization where, listen, we'll take all comers. Our thing is ranked choice voting. We're not even considering these other issues because we're not running candidates like this is our thing. We're getting it done in these five to 10 states, et cetera. That's number one. And then number two, and this isn't directed at you because, I mean, we've known each other at this point a long time, even before you ran for president. But there's a risk of the. Um, insistent lack of direct stands on moral issues that makes it feel very no labels-y. And no labels to me is very clearly like a front for basically like corporate status quo, where they're like, we're all about the center and the center means low low tax rates for corporations and the center means like low tax rates for rich people and attracts a bunch of wealthy donors. And they're basically using this sort of like populist grassroots, we all agree kind of rhetoric to cape for a protection of the status quo. And that's kind of where I get worried is like, when does trying to bring people together and avoid some of the most divisive issues, when does that run into, you're not challenging the things that need to be challenged and so in a way you're saving the status quo. Does that make sense? Um,
4: yes, so the the first one, um, there's a mayor of Fort Collins in Colorado Who just joined the forward party and said, look, I just don't want to be apologizing for one party or the other. I'm trying to get things done for my constituents. And at this point, everything is getting nationalized and that's not what I'm about. Uh, And so being a party is actually extraordinarily powerful and helpful for her, for uh, district attorney in Pittsburgh, who found himself in like in a particular spot. Um, There are 500,000 locally elected officials around the country. Up to 70 percent of their races are uncontested or uncompetitive, 5 to 10% are unfilled. Uh, and if you go to people and say, look, this is the home for people who just want to get stuff done and don't want to be carrying a D or an R next to their name, of that 500,000, how many are actually independents yeah. who are forced to wear an R or a D just because that that's necessary for...
1: But doesn't the content of what stuff is getting done, like, isn't that central? But
4: that's a great thing, Crystal, is that that person can then say, hey, you know what I'm for? Uh, you know, I'm for... Uh, you know, like public safety, educate, like whatever the mayor of Fort Collins wants to be for. Uh, And then they don't have a set of special interests, let's say, in one party or the other being like, hey, you know, don't say this, do say this, don't say this. They can be themselves. This is what the office holders want. This is what their constituents want. And you can't do that if you're not a party. I mean, 65 percent of Americans want a political alternative. About 49 percent say they're independent. So if you and this is something you know deeply because of your work, you know, over the last number of years, running for Congress and People's mm-hmm. House and everything else. But you know, if you say, "Look, we're we're going to do all these things to try and change things, but we're not willing to play politics," you're leaving seventy percent of the stuff off the table. We're around all these philanthropies and nonprofits, and and we don't think they're going to save the day, honestly. Now, is Forward Party going to save the day? Maybe, maybe not. But like, we're we're going to take a genuine shot at it by giving people a real banner to join and. Like, you know, like some of the support that they get from the current parties without having to sell their souls. Then the second thing about the entire like, hey, like wishy washy, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. There are people who are joining forward who want things that, in my opinion, the current Democratic Party would not be on board with. Um, be, uh, because you know it's too dramatic. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of the things I'm for used to be labeled as quite dramatic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, now, are there people who are part of Forward who are probably in another zone on some of those specific changes? Mm-hmm. Yes, um, but uh, right now the the major insight is none of us is going to get what we want in this current system. The current system is going to manipulate us. And I'm going to call out a woman I work with now very closely. Kate Sayer, who left the Democratic Party after being an operative there, she worked at Every Town for Gun Safety. She worked for very, very senior Dems. And she said she was in rooms where they were deciding uh, uh, to do things like maybe don't codify Roe v. Wade um, so they can use it uh, as a cudgel in the next election. And she said, wait a minute, I'm, I'm part of an organization that actually, like, if it has a chance to do the thing might not do the thing because it's more politically advantageous to not do the thing. Mm -hmm. And then she said, look, I'm, you know, I have to go do something where we'll actually try and make the changes, the incentive structure. And Ezra Klein said this, that corrupt systems compromise good individuals with ease. There are some folks in this political system, I think are good humans, Mm -hmm. but the results will not be good. And so, uh, you know, I, I'm not here to preserve the status quo. Let's put it that way. I'm going to say starting something like the forward party is the most dramatic act of change on the table right now.
0: So do you know, happen to know what like percentage of people in the forward party self-describe as like, I'm right-leaning, I'm left-leaning, I'm in the center. Do you guys have like data on that?
4: Well, one of the things we're trying to avoid, Kyle, is we think the entire left-right ideological spectrum is a play. Like they're they're, they're setting us up. And so we don't actually try and inventory people in that way. Um, If I were to just use my gut, (laughs) I'd say that um, we do run the gamut um, with a slight lean towards folks who probably, um, you know, see themselves as like reasonable and dislike the... Polarization.
0: And do you describe? How would you describe yourself? Are, would you say you're a centrist? Would you say you're center-left? How would you describe yourself these days?
4: Well, so this is part of it, Kyle. It's like anyone who wants to know what I'm for, you just look up all the policies that I ran on the presidential. And you, you st- know? Yeah, and you still stand by all those. You still agree. Virtually with Virtually all of them. Like okay. I, I, you know, and I didn't particularly think that they were ideological i mean you mentioned uh legalizing psychedelics you know one of the reasons why i believe that is because i talked to a dozen military veterans who said these substances are why i'm alive today and then you have that conversation you're like you know (laughs) you know like like convincing yeah Yeah. it's pretty freaking compelling and it's like what is on the other side like hey you know it's like some harm that i'm not sure about it's like well i know these these uh veterans are alive because of this and there probably be some veterans who would be alive uh if they'd had 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 access so uh I I'm for solving problems. Unfortunately, the problems are getting worse and worse and our government is, uh, is not.
1: So let me ask you the, uh, the dreaded spoiler question, but you know, the book is called the last election, clearly January 6th and stop the Steal and all the insanity that Trump brought to the political system, which is a symptom, I think of a deeper issue that you're pointing to as well. You know, it's part of what is bringing us to the brink of potentially the last election. Um, some of the issues that the Ford Party stands for, even though they should be completely nonpartisan, concern for democracy at this point sort of codes liberal. In the theory, at least of the Biden campaign, which is backed up by a fair amount of polling, is that they've got to keep together this quote unquote anti-Trump coalition. And if they don't, then Trump could win again and will bring you know all the everything he brought back before. Um, are you concerned that by running a candidate as Ford Party, that you could uh, potentially contribute to Trump's re-election?
4: Yeah, we're not running a presidential candidate uh, largely for that very reason. Oh, uh, you I, and, I didn't and, realize that and, you'd made and that people get, Oh, yeah, sure. People get asked. I mean, it wasn't ever a shift. Like We were never running around saying, like, you know, we're running a presidential candidate. I was never running around saying, like, I'm running for president. Uh, I'm a fairly numbers oriented guy and the numbers show that if let's say hypothetically someone like me were to run for president, I probably increase the chances of Trump winning. So would I do that? No, I would not. And then, you know, are there other humans that, um, you know, are staring at the same calculus? Uh, if, if they are, then I hope they also just look at the data. Interesting.
1: Yeah. Um, Andrew, tell people where to buy the book and um, where they can follow you.
4: Oh, well, thanks, Crystal. Um, First and foremost, check out forwardparty.com. Click on your state. Delightful people on the other end uh, might not agree with you on everything, but they probably agree with you on more than you think. Uh, The book is the last election available in bookstores anywhere. If you want to go straight to the publisher, you can go to andrewyang.com and there's like a big picture of it. You can also follow me on social media. Much to my wife's chagrin, I'm still on social media because I am still fighting for a better future. And I I hope that (laughs) Uh, the work we do will help lead us there.
1: Yeah, well, and we could have a whole other separate conversation that I hope we will at a certain point of your thoughts on social media um, because I know you've thought of a lot about tech and, you know, had allies in the tech world, et cetera. So I'd love to have your thoughts there as well. But guys, make sure you check out the book. It is really interesting, very thought-provoking. And Andrew, it's always thought-provoking to talk to you. So thank you for stopping by.
4: Thanks for having me, guys. Congrats again. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Our pleasure. Thanks, man. That
0: That was great. All right, there you have it. That's Andrew Yang. Um, so that portion at the end there where you asked him about whether or not he's running a forward party mm-hmm. candidate, I, I should have like hit you under the table or something. Cause yeah. I, I knew he had already committed to not running a candidate, be, particularly because he's a numbers guy, he's a data guy and he's deathly afraid of Trump, uh, getting reelected.
1: Yeah. I mean, I was glad to hear his reasoning. I was not glad for me to look like an idiot, not knowing uh, that that was the case, but I was actually happy to hear his reasoning on it.
0: What do you make of the, um, the way to get through to people, because that's what, you know, we, we talked about that a little bit, where I've gone back and forth on this, where sometimes I've tried to be very sympathetic, to slowly walk people through it, to first point out areas of agreement, to then build some trust, yeah. to then hook them into, hey, maybe you should check out this other political position that you think you disagree with, maybe you actually agree with it. I've tried that approach, uh, but then there are also times where I kind of get fed up, and I try, like, the tough love approach, where I'm like, no, you're fucking wrong. Yeah. And like it, for some people, in some instances, if you quote unquote shame them, it makes that it forces them to reevaluate because they're shocked. They're like, why would anybody disagree with me like this so fervently? And then they look and they go, oh, OK, well, maybe they do have a point. They seem to be very they seem to very aggressively and confidently believe this. And that that uh, confidence, even bordering on arrogance, can can sometimes move people where it's like pff, I they're sure for a reason. And I see their logic. So maybe I'll go in this direction. What you, what are your thoughts on? what's the best way to move people? Because I've gone back and forth uh, in terms of how to do that.
1: There's a lot of research on this that says basically the way to do it is rather than you preaching to them, try to bring them along by asking some questions that may allow them to go on their own intellectual journey about where the things that they say and their conclusions are dissonant. Um, And, you know, they've done a lot of research on this with regards to, like, door knocking and organizing. How do you persuade people at the door? And if you just hit them with a bunch of, like, here's the statistics and here's why you're wrong, rather than convincing them, more often than not, it actually has the exact opposite effect and hardens them in their views. Now, that all being said, I just—I guess I have— I have less confidence that any individual person, creator, whatever, given the like larger landscape of how our media system is and how our political system is and how social media is and the things that are rewarded, whatever, I guess I just have less confidence that there's going to be a measurable impact like significant large-scale impact regardless because there's so many people who just you know their identity becomes a certain political identity they find the tribe that they want to affiliate with they consume all the media that's like affiliated with that tribe and anything that goes against that they just sort of like discard or like I said it just hardens them in their views so rather than really fixating on what is the what do I think is going to appeal to or be palatable to or persuade the largest number of people? I think it's better to lead with, like, the values of how you want to approach people in the world, how you want to be in the world, the things that you believe in. That's kind of where I landed at this point.
0: You know, people are not stagnant, and their politics are not stagnant. And I think oftentimes people forget that. They're like, this isn't—nothing's set in stone here. And the reason why I think— Discussing the strategy and coming up with a good strategy. It makes a lot of sense is because it's the difference between going into the lion's den and convincing seven people Seven percent of people that Mm -hmm. you're right and like 12 percent of people that you're right. Yeah And you add that up long enough over a long time frame and it's like no you actually did change some minds Yeah, you know
1: if that's the case and I I like your hopeful view um, If that is the case then there's no doubt that the, the like based on the research the shaming direction is not effective there may be outlier cases, but overall by percentage to try to bring people along and show empathy and, and so, like I signal mean, that you get where they're coming from and then sort of like pose some questions that allow them to question themselves. Based on the statistics and the, the data and the studies, that works a lot better than, like, you're fucking wrong, you're an idiot, here's why. Well, I didn't say blah, that. Blah, blah. Ma- yeah, maybe,
0: maybe shaming is not the word I'm looking for mm-hmm. as much as it's being a confident leader and standing on what you say.
1: Well, I think there's a difference between if someone is hard in a view and you're trying to persuade them or somebody doesn't really know what they think. Uh, of course, it varies so- person
0: to person, but remember, studies also show that, like, logic and facts do not move people. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? So like then it, it all comes down to, and it sucks that this is the case, but it almost comes down to like a subconscious psychological game.
1: Right. So I think if someone is like, doesn't really know where they stand on something, then they may respond to that like sort of confident persona that you're talking about. If they, especially if they already feel like this is someone who's generally on my side, and there's a confident persona per, you know, presented on some specific topic, then you may lock that person into whatever your point of view is if that makes sense. And so if you have people who are coming to your channel who, you know, they see you as someone who's generally, you know, on the same political page as them, and then you're approaching an issue that they haven't really thought through, I think that just like assertive, you'd be an idiot if you didn't think this kind of a presentation, and I'm not saying that's like the way you would present it, but but that vibe, I think that could, in that instance, could be effective. To
0: me, I feel like what I've defaulted to as the only consistent thing is I just have to tell the truth as I see it and then let, let the chips fall where they may. Right. And there are times where that approach led me to to being more like, let's lead with a foot of agreement. Let's talk about, hey, I think you have a point here. You're right about this thing. Mm-hmm. Have you considered this other thing? You know what I mean? I've done that at times, and there's yeah. other times I've been like, look, here's my view. I'm going to lay it out. Boom, 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 boom. It is what it is. Take it or leave it, but I'm right. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And like, I don't, I don't know if there is an actual formula that is objectively empirically the best. I think it absolutely varies on the individual personalities that you're engaging with. Yeah. What their predispositions are, what they bring to the conversation, you know, what they already think and feel. So I don't think there's a formula. So I think in lieu of there not being a formula, you just have to fill it in with like, I just have to say it as I see it and then let the chips fall where they may. And if that leads to rampant disagreement where you're even losing more people, it's like, all right, maybe we have to reevaluate at that point. But as they say in court truth is always a defense.
1: There's also the fact that anybody who's going to be listening to our shows is going to be way more like politically engaged than your average person. And so they're they're going to bring more to it. Than if you were door knocking, you know, in a random neighborhood with kind of like your average, you know, politically disengaged individual. That's like a different circumstance than when you're trying to convey something to an audience that's clearly already very politically interested.
0: I think you're right. But I also um, I also cherish and pride the fact that I've managed to hold on to normiedom through the cesspool of an Internet. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's one of the number one problems with people online is their normiedom is out the window yeah. and they are online <laughs> yeah. and it's so insular and it's so terminally online that like they can't, they don't even understand that there's a difference between what I think in my little bubble versus what normal people are thinking who are not <laughs> online 24 seven. You know yeah, what I'm saying? For sure. And while I think maintaining that, uh, that connection to normiedom is an overwhelmingly positive thing.
1: Yes. And uh, I have found the less I'm on social media, the more easily I'm able to do that.
0: Oh, absolutely. There's no doubt about that. It could be a cesspool. It could be absolutely toxic.
1: Yeah. And it, it's difficult to not let that infect the way that you're thinking about things. So touch grass, people.
0: <laughs> All right. Touch grass. Good. <laughs> good thing to end on. All right, guys. Thank you for listening. As always, we love you. Hope you enjoyed it. Everybody do us a big favor uh, Go on over to Substack. You could sign up for free and get the uh, free audio version of the podcast. Every show you get it a day later on Saturdays or if you pay five dollars a month, you get uh, the video of every interview, debate, et cetera. You get it a day early. And remember, we never had a conversation with any advertiser or any company or corporation for this show. It's all small dollar donations. So uh, please consider supporting us. And of course, much love to everybody who already does support us. We love you and we'll talk to you next week.